This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. This year, embrace your creative side. You know, the side your mom gave you? And shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. NSA is a foreign intelligence agency. We're responsible for understanding a broad range of threats. Um, presented by foreign governments to the United States. One of those threats include our cyber threats, how nations may be using cyber to achieve their national objectives. That might be intellectual property theft, for example, to counter the Department of Defense's lethality by accelerating a foreign government's ability to, to actually productize particular R&D for a weapon. That may be targeting critical infrastructure of a country um, as part of threatening that country or as part of putting pressure on a given country. How are we doing against the cyber threat? You know, are we barely keeping up? Are we catching up? Are we getting ahead of the game? Or is it always gonna be hard for the defender? Overall, technology is getting more secure. Um, Technology is built more securely today. Um, So the fundamental resilience is, is improving you know, when you have open source products, we have lots of eyes looking at a given technology and helping find vulnerabilities and address them. That being said, we're an ever more connected economy and an ever more connected society. And as we build more connections, sometimes to systems that were not necessarily built for those kinds of connections, we bring and introduce new risks. On the third pole, though, on the positive side, there's far more awareness about those risks and how to approach addressing them, identifying what are the most important assets to protect. There seems to be an effort on the part of NSA to kind of open up the black box and kind of shed the reputation, no such agency. If we want to be trusted to achieve what we believe we can uniquely contribute to Team USA on cyber, the first step to doing that is conveying who we are, conveying the culture that's here, the commitment to American values, And certainly, when a part of our mission is an intelligence mission in a democracy, we have an obligation to ensure that the Americans we serve feel they understand the values by which we live. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. 
Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Anne Newberger is the current director of the National Security Agency's Cybersecurity Directorate. She has held a variety of jobs in both the public and private sectors. We just sat down with Anne to talk about her career, her and her directorate's multiple responsibilities, and how she sees the cyber threats facing our country. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. So Anne, welcome to Intelligence Matters. It is great to have you on the show. It's great to be here. Thank you. So I think the place to start, Anne, is with your career. Before you joined the National Security Agency, you had a career in the private sector. Can you tell us about that and tell us what you did in the private sector and then what drew you into government service? Sure, absolutely. So um, I was in, I was running technology at a, at a financial services company. And during that time period when financial services companies really moved off mainframe environments to the web, um, to client server technology. So that piece of both taking an operations and a mission and its associated technology and people and culture really shaped shaped the way I approach a lot of those problems today. Um, And I was raised in in a family where my my dad came as a refugee, all my grandparents came as refugees to the US and they just constantly instilled in us how grateful we should be um, for the opportunity to be born in America and raised in America with its freedoms with its ability to pursue one's dreams and um, and that we owed a debt for that and um, I was driving home from from work in uh, in 2006 we had just done a large acquisition of a, a company's of a bank's custodian operations and on the radio they were talking about the bombing of mosque uh, Samara mosque and uh, in Samara Iraq and just mm. the soldiers dying, civilians dying, and the troubles there. And I, I still don't know why, but I uh, thought of my dad and uh, thought to myself, perhaps now's the time to repay a little bit of, of that debt in some way. And when I'd been a graduate student at Columbia, I'd had, a, I'd had a professor tell me about the White House Fellows Program and encourage me to apply. And I kind of, I have to admit, with a bit of the New York, uh, can't leave New York ever, thought, mm-hmm. um, kind of put that aside. And for whatever reason, I just felt that calling at that moment, called him and said, I'll apply. And fast forward, um, I was assigned to the Pentagon with zero military background um, and you know, learned a lot about the culture, felt very drawn to that shared commitment. Um, so spent a year in the Pentagon, then worked for the Navy and then came to NSA um, a couple years later. What did they have you doing at the Pentagon and the Navy? So I was the deputy chief management officer of the Navy. So essentially the Navy had a number of broad enterprise-wide technology efforts, um, which they were working to again, bring that, you know, people, mission, technology triangle together. And uh, they asked me to help work on a couple, working directly for the secretary of the Navy, figure out why a couple of them were struggling and then help them get on track. Um, so I worked on that. and. You know, I often get asked by people, how did you end up at NSA? It was a, a pretty funny story in that I had a seven and six year old and uh, I was commuting from Baltimore and the 
the work-life balance was a bit tough mm. and I met somebody and uh, he asked me about uh, how I was doing and I commented that uh, I really loved the work but it was a little hard for me to do the juggle um, mm. and he said you know I happen to know that NSA is standing up you know director of NSA is standing up cyber command and I know they need people with your kind of of background so how about if I make a phone call there mm. and uh, I went for an interview my commute was 30 minutes and it sounds so foolish but uh that was pretty much what it took. Interesting, interesting. So the private sector, and then the Department of Defense, which is, as you know, this huge enterprise, and then NSA. And this is a this is not an easy question, I know, but kind of the the similarities and differences of those three different experiences. It all begins with people. Um, in every organization, missions have to adapt and change. Uh, they adapt and change in the private sector because. Perhaps you have a competitor, perhaps the customer space has adapted. Um, certainly financial services saw that where the scale of data was just increasing, the scale of trades was increasing, and the traditional manual processes couldn't keep up. So we knew automation was needed to just reduce errors and help us keep on track with where trading was going. Um, technology could deliver on that, but the, the business of the organization had to change to fully take advantage of the technology. And the way people did that mission and used technology had to change along the way. So I think in each of those organizations, it taught me that for that, that triangle has to be kind of guided together to get to an outcome. Mission, technology, and people, if you really want to be able to fully, um, whether it's take advantage of a market or stay ahead of an adversary in our own mission here in the IC or DOD, that triangle has to work together and you have to communicate every those three planes together when talking about why the change is needed. All right. So Anne, in your tenure at NSA, you've served as its first chief risk officer, the assistant deputy director of operations, the head of the Russia small group, and now the head of the cybersecurity directorate. Can you take us through your trajectory there? How did your responsibilities differ from role to role? Absolutely. Um, so I came into um, NSA on a small team, part of a small team that was standing up Cyber Command. The chief risk officer role was, um, was created after the media leaks period of 2013, where we learned that really appreciating risk meant looking at that in a holistic way across partnership risk, operational risk, technology risk. Um, we learned that we needed to adapt the way we looked at risk and then change according to that. So I think in each of those roles, um, either the adversary was changing around us, the threat was changing around us, or internally we wanted to take advantage fully of an opportunity. Um, and I was responsible for taking the big picture strategic goals and translating those to you know, measurable outcomes and objectives and helping you know, contribute, communicate the why, and then bringing a team of people along to get there. Each of those efforts was a bit different, um, but, you know, in each of those, we talked about the risk of doing and the risk of not doing, weighing that appropriately. Um, we talked about the ensuring that as we approach new missions, policy and technology move together. And certainly when we looked at the elections work um, in 2018, the Russia small group work, we saw we're Adversaries have, have used influence operations since the time of Adam and Eve, but perhaps what it changed was, again, the ability to use social media to both focus and direct it to have larger impact.
Yeah. So focusing on the the Russia small group for just a second, and what was that? What was the what was the mission? And what were your responsibilities with regard to the 2018 elections to the extent that you can talk about that? Absolutely. So the mission was ensuring the integrity of the 2018 midterm elections, ensuring that we first understood the threat. Second, that we appropriately tipped all the information we had about that threat to key partners across the U.S. government, certainly FBI from a counter-influence perspective, DHS from a cybersecurity of elections infrastructure perspective, and that finally, that we would support Cyber Command if, if authorized to impose costs if there were attempts to disrupt, um, disrupt the election. So after the 2018 elections, President Trump publicly confirmed that Cyber Command played a role in deterring the Russians in 2018. Are there important lessons from what happened in 2018 about how we as a country can defend ourselves against this, this insidious threat? Yes. So, you know, across the government, we look at two key poles of election integrity. One is um, attempts to maligny influence a population, whether that is to highlight social discord, to highlight issues that divide the population or to, you know, hack and dump, share inappropriate, you know, share information as part of shaping individuals' ideas. And then the second is potentially interfering, hacking into elections infrastructure as part of efforts to change the vote. And I think the first piece is the value of resiliency, the sense that, you know, once trust is lost, it's very hard to regain. So the knowledge mm -hmm. for the American public that there are hundreds of people across the U.S. government committed to and working to ensure the integrity of our elections. Um, when it comes to counter-influence, though, the biggest resilience is each of us um, as Americans. When we're reading something asking, who might be trying to influence me? What is the source of that information? Am I fully confident in that source of that information? Um, and then finally, the role of the role of technology and the role of public-private partnership um, and as part of elections integrity. So for us in the intelligence community, we're constantly watching for which adversaries may be seeking to, to shape a population's thinking, to shape an election, and then rapidly tipping that to partners or um, to the private sector to ensure that they're both aware of techniques and are countering them on their platforms. So we've since learned, in fact, last week via updates from the DNI that the Russians continue to engage in election interference, the Chinese, the Iranians. And the punchline of all that for me is it's really hard to deter foreign interference, right? And I'm wondering if it's something special about foreign interference or if it's more about cyber at the end of the day and the difficulty of seeing cyber, attributing it if you see it. How do you think about that question? Absolutely. I think it is more about cyber than about elections. From a cyber perspective, when we look at fully um, both protecting cyber infrastructure and then to your second point about attribution, there's complexity in laying what we call the red on top of blue. We may see threats um, that are talked about at a strategic perspective. And then we and partners across the U.S. government are looking to see where does that present itself? Where are the given vulnerabilities in a given infrastructure? The power is when you can lay the two together and say, here is a nation state mm. that has intent to interfere in whatever that is, an election, critical infrastructure, IP theft. 
and then translate that to the tactical level to say that network scanning or that vulnerability in hardware or software may well be used to achieve the objective, putting that in place, and then most importantly, preventing it. Because at yeah. the end of the day, writing a report about a victim and notifying the victim is far less satisfying than being able to put that together and prevent the adversary achieving their objective. So we've already started to shift now into your new role, right? Which was relaunched in October, I believe. So it'd be great if you could, Anne, if you could explain for our listeners, first, what NSA's two main missions are, um, SIGINT and then cybersecurity, and the difference between them, just to give some folks here a level set. Absolutely. So NSA is a foreign intelligence agency. We're responsible for understanding a broad range of threats um, presented by foreign governments to the United States. One of those threats include our cyber threats, how nations may be using cyber to achieve their national objectives. As I said, that might be intellectual property theft, for example, to counter the Department of Defense's lethality by accelerating a foreign government's ability to to uh, to actually productize particular R&D for a weapon that may be targeting critical infrastructure of a country um, as part of threatening that country or as part of putting pressure on a given country. So that is the threat information. On the second side, um, NSA has a cybersecurity mission where it's less well known. Uh, we build the keys, codes, and cryptography that's used to protect all of U.S. government's most sensitive communications thinking nuclear command and control, weapon systems, the president's communications with allies. And we provide technical advice to mitigate those same threats that I talked about. So the really the key integration of the two missions is where we think the magic is, where mm. we can say, here's what we think adversaries are seeking to do. And here's how, from a cybersecurity perspective, we recommend you protect against that. So, so what motivated and the relaunch of the directorate, and and has its mission changed at all? Really good question. So, we recognize that we were at a crossroad with national security as both technology and society shifts were happening. Um, we saw all new kinds of technology that people wanted to use, from small satellites to Internet of Things, and each of those presents huge advancements. Um, but they also present cybersecurity risk. Along with that, we saw various nation states start to use new technologies, think North Korea and cryptocurrencies to get around sanctions to achieve their own objectives. And we said, we really need to up our game to more quickly be understanding those threats and ensuring that we could both provide advice to build new technologies as securely as possible, but also to counter adversaries' use of those same technologies to achieve their national security goals. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, then we'll be right back with more of our discussion with Ann Newberger. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. So, Anne, what are the, what are the primary areas of focus for your directorate? What kind of people work there? What's their skill set? And what kind of customers do you serve? 
Great question. So the first part is um, operationalizing intelligence. How do we ensure that from the intelligence that we see, we tip anything that's unique, actionable, and timely quickly so that we can prevent the victim? Um, so that's the first the first piece of, of work. Our areas of focus are um, both understanding that, giving guidance, encryption. We believe encryption is a key protection, uh, particularly in a telecommunications environment that in many cases is untrusted. Um, so both in building the government special encryption, modernizing that, as well as providing advice and insights on how to best use um, encryption. The types of people who work here are, like we see in many organizations, a broad gamut. We have intelligence analysts, we have country-specific experts, we have a broad swath of technical experts, encryption, network technologies, hardware and software vulnerability analysts as well. But the power is where that can be integrated, mm. where you can say, how do you build on a root of trust all the way through to an endpoint? How do you properly defend a network? And take a step back and do risk analysis to say, where are the gaps in your resilience? And where should your next dollar of investment be to close those gaps? Right, and then what about customers? Is your, is is it the, just the Department of Defense? Is it the US government? Is it even broader than that? How do you think about who it is you're working for? Yep, great question. So there's a specific set of work we do for what we call national security systems, systems carrying classified information, national security information. Uh, the director of NSA is also the national manager for national security systems. So that's the authority under which, as I mentioned, we have we build the keys, codes, and cryptography, and we're responsible for distributing threat information as well. So those are across the U.S. government with a particular focus on DOD weapon systems um, and related systems. A second set of key partners and customers are certainly DHS, FBI, DHS in its role, supporting critical infrastructure um, and the sector specific agencies. And like I said, the, the real magic of understanding the critical infrastructure, where its key gaps and vulnerabilities are, and being able to marry that up with what a foreign government may be intending to do and providing focused insight. Across the US government, there is broad use of commercial technologies, particularly DOD and, um, and national security systems. So you may have seen when we're issuing advisories, we're also issuing advice on how to secure and configure those commercial technologies well, because we see that um, those are used all across um, sensitive systems as well. Your directorate has issued, I think, a dozen or so advisories about cybersecurity threats. Can you talk about why you guys do that, what the criteria is for putting one of those out, and then how do you think about the impact they have? Do you keep metrics on that? How do you think about advisories? Absolutely. Um, so our advisories are the way, we, we really do them for three reasons. One is, um, if we see a nation state actor using a particular vulnerability against a system we care about, we find that it really drives urgency of action. People run faster when they're pursued. And if we can say, this nation state actor is using this vulnerability, here's the mitigation advice to protect yourself against that, we see impact. And I'll talk about that, how we measure that impact at the end. The second thing is, you know, there's a deep expertise here because we build and we break encryption. So encryption related technologies like VPNs, like you, you may recall the Windows 10 cryptographic vulnerability in January, mm -hmm. 
those are areas we focus on because we know those are sometimes hard to understand and technically hard to implement. So if we can give very practical advice, then we'll issue those as well to help that be put in place. And then the third would be um, where there's a timely need and we're getting a lot of questions um, and we feel that putting out a product helps guide people in thinking about how to think about security. I'll give an example. Um, as, um, as COVID um, pressed a lot of organizations across the U.S. government, particularly DOD as well, to move to telework, we started mm -hmm. getting a lot of questions about secure collaboration and which commercial tools were safe to use. And our goal was teaching people how to evaluate what's safe to use. So we issued a product where it laid out the different attributes, like code is available for review, it's end-to-end -end encrypted, and a few other uh, such attributes. And then we rated different secure collaboration publicly available tools against them. And the cool part was we had companies call and say, well, you know, you didn't get something quite right, or can we be included as well? And we said, absolutely. And we issued a second version, and then we have another one coming out next week. Because our goal was making it, you know, as useful as possible and also helping teach people um, how to assess um, different products for security. You asked the question about how we measure impact. So there's three different measures we've been using. The first is, do we see patch rates go up? Mm. You know, do we see for vulnerabilities that we've talked about, here is a, a foreign actor that might be using a vulnerability to achieve an objective, you know, can we watch those patch rates go up? And you know, it was really cool to see in a number of cases we've, we've watched that increase. The second piece is, there is a very capable and active cybersecurity industry. Has the information we shared enabled them to better protect, you know, sensitive U.S. government national security systems networks? And, you know, in the case of the Exim vulnerability that we issued, where advisory, where we talked about the particular unit of Russian intelligence using the Exim mail vulnerability, it was really great to see five different cybersecurity entities using that to identify other um, Russian intelligence infrastructure and then take that down. So that was success for us, that we made it harder for that adversary to achieve its objectives. And then the third one is really the feedback on the number of downloads and the feedback from network administrators saying this was useful. This was unique, timely and actionable. I could act on it. And then in, in May, you guys took what I thought was an unprecedented step of actually openly attributing the exploitation of a vulnerability to the Russian GRU. And that seemed rare to me. And I'm wondering why you decided to actually name Russia um, in this instance. So first it is rare because as you noted earlier, implicitly attribution's hard. Um, you may have seen a prior product where we highlighted one nation state using another country's <laughs> infrastructure to achieve its objective. And that highlighted just how hard attribution is. So when it's done, it needs to be done with precision to be confident um, in that. And we chose to do it because um, we see that it makes targeted network owners more quickly patch and secure and build the resilience of their systems. Network administrators have way more vulnerabilities to address than they have time for, or frankly, money for, and way more alerts than they can act on. So if we can say this particular vulnerability is being used by a nation state intelligence service, um, we see them, we see network administrators moving quickly and addressing it. And that's our fundamental goal. Our fundamental goal is improving cybersecurity. 
if you kind of step back and, and look at look at the big picture here, you know, maybe from a 35,000 foot level, how are we doing against the cyber threat? You know, are we barely keeping up? Are we catching up? Are we getting ahead of the game? Or is it always going to be hard for the defender um, in this game? And because the guy on the offense can always come up, come up with something new. How do you think about sort of where we are in the history of, of the threat of cyber and the defense against it? I think three points. Overall, technology is getting more secure. Um, technology is built more securely today. Um, so the fundamental resilience is is improving. You know, when you have open source products, you have lots of eyes looking at a given technology and helping find vulnerabilities and address them. That being said, we're an ever more connected economy and an ever more connected society. And as we build more connections, sometimes to systems that were not necessarily built for those kinds of connections, I think SCADA systems in that way, we bring and introduce new risks. On the third poll, though, on the positive side, there's far more awareness about those risks and how to approach addressing them, identifying what are the most important assets to protect and ensuring good practices are in place and it's far easier than ever to put that in place. So I think it's a mixed story. On the one hand, more and more technology is built more securely, and there are communities of individuals working together to ensure they're secure. On the other hand, far more um, technology, some of which um, is connected in ways that bring risk, um, in ways that uh, we always have to, and I guess the third part, which is where we started, adversaries seeking to take advantage of those risks to achieve their objectives. So if you, and if you were standing in front of a large multinationals board of directors and you were talking to them about cybersecurity, what's the one or two things that you would absolutely want them to take away from, from your conversation? What is the tangible thing you most want to protect? And what's the intangible thing you most want to protect? So if you're a drug company, what is the intellectual property that's going to be your next potentially big drug, big driver of economic growth, big driver of healing. And then second, what's the biggest intangible thing? Perhaps that's your reputation, mm -hmm. the way you treat your employees, the price, the, the prices that you charge and what your, what your, uh, how much you mark that up. Make sure that you're protecting both carefully, make your, your cybersecurity commensurate with, with the risk presented to you if you lose either one. Yeah, and you mentioned you mentioned SCADA systems, and I'm not sure that all my listeners know what those are. Could you just explain that? And then, is there something is there something special about protecting a SCADA system from protecting a a, a normal network? Absolutely. So SCADA systems are essentially control systems for the core areas of infrastructure in a given country in a given company. So think power systems, clean water, drug manufacturing. Um, and those are, um, those are often complex systems. So what's unique about them is, you know, those systems over the years were often built for reliability in the event of a bad storm that a power system would come back online with confidence as, um, more technologies got connected. So, for example, the ability to measure um, use of power, the ability to measure confidence in, in, in water and chemical levels. Um, some of those systems got connected to um, network systems that provide a way to access them. 
one of the joint products we recently issued between NSA and DHS was um, an ICS product because there had been some, you know, public articles about a, um, a given attack against SCADA systems um, in the Middle East, and we wanted to ensure that we, together with DHS, one of our closest partners, was providing technical advice to um, SCADA entities in the U.S. based on what we were learning um, about those attacks. So, and just a couple more questions. You've been terrific with your time, which seems to be an effort on the part of NSA to kind of open up the black box and kind of shed the reputation, no such agency, right? Your conversation with me, I think, is an example of that. Why is that a priority for for the agency and for General Nakasone? Um, first, in the cybersecurity mission, fundamentally, um, if we're not trusted, we can't achieve our impact. Uh, people take advice mm. from those they trust, and the power of what, you know, across the U.S. government, Team USA works cyber. There are, each organization plays its position within that role. You know, my counterpart at DHS, Chris Krebs, often talks about them being the national risk managers. At NSA, we believe what we can bring uniquely is that integration of intelligence, what adversaries are seeking to do, what their capabilities are, what their infrastructure looks like, and how to defend against it, the cybersecurity advice to counter that. And that's always continuing because technologies change, adversaries' goals change, and the resilience always has to be increased to meet that. So if we want to be trusted to achieve what we believe we can uniquely contribute to Team USA on cyber, the first step to doing that is conveying who we are, conveying the culture that's here, the commitment to American values. And certainly when a part of our mission is an intelligence mission in a, in a democracy, we have an obligation to ensure that mm. the Americans we serve feel they understand the values by which we live. So your your former colleague and my really good friend, Glenn Gerstel, wrote a op-ed about a year ago about what he saw as the profound implications of the digital revolution on national security. And he raised a lot of concerns. And among those was the sheer pace and scale and volume of technological change and and data that's going to force intelligence agencies, including NSA, to fundamentally change how they do business. How is NSA thinking big picture about those kind of challenges? What are you trying to tackle first? What are the adjustments look like? How do you how do you think about the challenge that Glenn laid out? Absolutely. So first, from the perspective of large amounts of data and ensuring we can make sense of them, um, ensuring that we can do big data analysis to help um, triage the information we identify and determine what our people, our biggest assets, put their time on to determine key threats and how to act on them. So, for example, um, we lo we're looking at machine learning to classify malware, and we're certainly looking at um, machine learning potentially to help us identify vulnerabilities at scale, particularly when we look at systems that represent 30 years of technology like weapon systems. How do you secure a weapon system? Um, that's been out there and represents each phase of technology and have confidence in its resilience and in its command and control. Um, and then finally, um, we have an obligation to both bring those technologies to bear on our mission and understand how adversaries might use that and manage that accordingly. So, for example, um, as we think about artificial intelligence and the potential to automatically uh, direct a weapon, you know, in the United States, we have strong values around how we would think about automation versus human control. 
Um, in other countries around the world, there might be different ways that those kinds of decisions are approached. So how do we ensure that we both um, bring that integration of values, compliance, and technology to the way we pursue it, but also be aware of those gaps and, and keep an eye on the risks of those gaps? Yeah. And you mentioned, you mentioned people, Anne, and you mentioned people a couple of times and, and, and just two, two questions about that. One is, you know, given the competition that you face, right, with all of these cybersecurity firms and, you know, your folks must be very attractive to them and their skills are quite valuable in the private sector. How, how difficult is it for you to recruit and retain talent? Really thoughtful question because you asked two questions in there, recruit and retain. Um, so on a, from the recruit side, we get really great people. Um, on the retain side, we have a really compelling mission. And what brings, what keeps people here is the sense that they're contributing to something bigger than themselves that is challenging and fulfilling. You know, it's on us as organizational leaders to ensure that each person has that opportunity to contribute what they can uniquely bring to, to that mission. Um, and one of the one of the cool aspects of the cybersecurity standup has been people who have left to call in and say, "Hey, I'd like to come back. I learned mm -hmm. a lot um, in the private sector. The mission's calling me, and I'd like to contribute again." And mm -hmm. you know, we've hired a number of them back and continuing to increase that. And part of the message we have when people, if people do decide to leave, is to say, "That is great. You will continue to contribute to the nation's security. Um, you'll learn a lot." In the private sector, and if you ever want to come back, the doors open. Yeah, what do you what do you want the American people to know about the women and men who work for you? That they're committed to the values um, that this country was established for. That there are significant threats to the United States, our allies, and to those values, and that not always can we talk about those threats because. By impact, sometimes the intelligence community, even the cybersecurity mission, has to operate in those in the shadows. So, trust our values. Trust that we are proud Americans. We swear an oath to the Constitution of the United States. And if you do question it, or if you want to learn more, roll up your sleeves and come into the IC for a few years and get to know mm -hmm. it yourself. Because yeah. each person has unique abilities and a unique ability to contribute to their to their country in whatever way they choose, whether that's yeah. in government or in the private sector. But if you ever doubt it, come on in and, and work yeah. here and uh, and raise your voice and be a part of it. It sort of takes you back to what your parents taught you to. It really does. You know, it. Uh, my dad grew up in, in communist Hungary and um, in the, in the beginning, when I came into government, he would call me uh, on the phone sometimes and, and switch to a foreign language. Mm -hmm. And uh, I realized that for him, growing up in, in another country, um, there never is that complete trust of government that I, American-born, mm -hmm. you know, have. That doesn't mean it's trust and not verify. It's trust sure. and verify. But there are things that I take for granted growing up in this society that I don't know if he ever will. So being able to look at things through his eyes and through mine make me realize how fortunate we are to be here and how much we have an obligation to, uh, to ensure it stays that way. And thank you so much for joining us. And thank you for your service. Thank you so much for your time. That was Ann Neuberger. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. 
This has been the Intelligence Matters Podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, and Jake Rosen. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod and follow Michael at Michael J. Morrell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader, too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.